2: We are very happy to share with you Dale's profound insight and open heart. Please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Dale to support this podcast. Welcome everybody to the Healing at the Edge podcast channel on the Be Here Now podcast network. This is Dale Borglum, also known to my select few friends as Ram Dave interviewing today my dear old friend, or old dear friend, whichever that is, I'm not sure, (laughs) Susan Shannon, who is an interfaith minister and is now leading a Buddhist chaplaincy group at death row in San Quentin Prison. The group started out with one person in it, now there's 65 people in it, which simply speaks to Susan's heart. And I've known Susan since she was carrying mail around San Anselmo, California. And uh, she has, we're not sure it's really graduated from being a mail carry to being a mail carrier to being a chaplain. Welcome, Susan.
0: (laughs) Thank you, Dale.
2: (laughs) (laughs) So uh, I read the article you sent me about the work you're doing in San Quentin, how you're Uh, facilitating a group where people in death row are studying some of the Buddhist scriptures, the Dhammapada, Heart Sutra, Lotus Sutra, and particularly Shantideva's Way of the Bodhisattva. Mm -hmm. And as we were talking before, I turned on the record button here, I was mentioning this study by Richie Davidson, the professor at the University of Wisconsin, who's a Buddhist, where they found that cultivating awareness led to higher quality of life, better relationships, more calmness, the usual things. But what they found that I'd like to bring up now is that by cultivating compassion, those wholesome qualities were cultivated much more quickly. Mm-hmm. That, that uh, compassion is a more direct way to happiness than just trying to be aware of what it is that's going on. And one of my favorite quotes is from the Dalai Lama where he says, if you want others to be happy, practice compassion. If you want to be happy, practice compassion. So imagine what a life would be like if your only motivation for doing things was compassion. What is the compassionate thing to do in the world? And in asking that question, it really strikes me that these guys on death row who are locked down in these cells uh pretty much what is it 23 hours a day or something like that
0: maybe a little less
2: okay uh have a lot of chance to examine the place of compassion in their life mm-hmm. so please uh just feel free to talk about what it's like being with that group uh, how these guys are responding and how the buddha dharma is really appropriate to bring into the 21st century death row uh, area of the prison.
0: Okay. Yeah, thank you, Dale. Um, so you're specifying death row, but I would also like to bring in some of the work I do with the mainline population there. The mainline population are the men that are um, able to take programs and and go in school. They're not on death row. They have the possibility of parole. Um, so I'd, I'd like to start there because that's where I've really come to learn about how uh, how these men basically came up, how they grew up, and what happens to the brain when people are living with a lot of trauma and abuse and neglect. There's parts of the brain that just simply are not wired up yet, and um cultivating, developing a mindfulness practice really allows for those those rooms of the of the brain. I like to think of them as rooms that just aren't wired up yet. It allows for them to wire up slowly through regulating the breath and through um, basically just calming the body down and and allowing for a reset on all the different circuits going on in the body, circuits and systems. So it's been miraculous for me to see how over time, sometimes a short time, sometimes a a period of years, suddenly that light goes on. Suddenly the brain is wired up and and the switch is flipped. And someone will come forward and say, gosh, I don't know what's going on with me. Last night I just wept at something on TV and I've never done that before. And from that moment onward, the path of compassion, empathy, understanding, tolerance, all of those spiritual qualities begin to develop. So that's that's the, the path that I see being directly uh, related to cultivating a meditation practice. Um, the man cool. on death, go ahead.
2: Uh, I'm kind of surprised you say that it happens suddenly. Sometimes. Because my experiences with my, my own practice and people that I, I work with as a meditation teacher that almost always it's a very, very gradual Mm -hmm. uh, awakening. In fact, Stephen Levine wrote a lovely book called The Gradual Awakening. And yet you're talking about these rooms opening up or light coming into the room. I love that metaphor. Mm -hmm. And maybe if you've had enough trauma that all of a sudden there's a connection made that for most of us who haven't had severe trauma, uh, it's a more gradual process. I I actually...
0: I think it is gradual, Dale, and I think it depends on where you're where you're looking from. So, from my perspective, if I'm uh, if I'm out in the middle of the ocean and I'm rowing a boat, and all of the sudden I see the back of a whale coming up, it's a sudden uh, view, right? It's a sudden image. But really, what's going on is this big whale has come up very slowly, up, up, up. So when I say sudden, I'm also recognizing the the great deal of work that's gone on prior to that
2: okay mm-hmm. i used to uh, facilitate a group in san quentin for guys with aids
1: mm-hmm.
2: and one time i did uh just spontaneously i asked how many of you guys were abused physically or sexually as a child and 18 out of the 19 guys in the group raised their hands
0: yeah it's pretty pretty terrible for people driving by prisons or San Quentin every day, or you know, living here in Marin County and having that be a part of our landscape. It really changes the picture when you think that that prison is filled with people who, prior to their conviction, were the victims of heinous crimes were the victims of society really allowing them to drop through the cracks? And for for my own compassion, hearing these kind of stories is what has completely eliminated my sense of them as um, as perpetrators in the small sense. Um, so yeah, it's it's quite stunning. These are very broken people, for the most part.
2: Let me say something and see if I can get an argument from you. Uh, when I was going into San Quentin, I felt that for some of the guys that I was working with, I was really glad they were behind bars mm. and not out on the street where I had a young child running around. You know, and I'm not I'm not blaming them for where they ended up particularly, but that they were not ready to be uh, released into polite society in a certain way. And unfortunately, there's very little rehabilitation that's going on in prisons. I mean, I think San Quentin, because it's in Marin, has Mm -hmm. as many volunteers going in there to teach as the rest of the prisons in the state combined. There's a statistic I heard a long time ago.
0: That's true. Pretty true. Yeah. um, Well, you're not going to get an argument out of me. Um, I think... I think that's true. There are a lot of people that, um, for whom prison probably is a good place, and uh, for the ones who are going to eventually come out of prison, many of them say prison saved their life. One thing I'd like to lift out is one day I was sitting in group with a group of men there at the prison, and one of the guys said, "You know, I have this theory. You come to prison." and you see these guys who are out on the streets and they were out doing all kinds of damage and you all you knew of them was that they were gangsters and then they come to prison and after a year or two they're playing amazing guitar or they're incredible artists he said i think if the world could just slow down and more people could just stop and simplify their lives people's true gifts would be able to be offered to the world. And I found that to be so profound. Really? And it's, you know, I really think it's true. So for a lot of people, prison has allowed them to stop and to really rest in themselves, in their hearts, and do some hard-looking. And uh, on the other side of that, for their true gifts to really emerge, much of this happens after someone takes that long journey from the head to the heart. They say the journey from the head to the heart is the longest journey. And many of the programs at San Quentin are programs that allow uh, uh, support of that journey, including my death row program.
2: I'm sure you're familiar with Bo Lozoff, who died a number of years ago, but he started the Hanuman Foundation Prison Ashram Project. And made the point that being in prison is an awful lot like being in an ashram, except you haven't chosen to be there. Yeah,
0: absolutely. But that, yeah, when I... but that
2: it allows you to have the space to slow down and learn to play the guitar, learn to meditate or learn to there you go. learn to draw. And right. uh, I remember one time I was facilitating a, a group at San Quentin for these guys with AIDS and HIV. And there was a new young guy that came in the group. He was really angry. He'd never been there before. He was a person of color. And as the group was starting, he said, well, who the hell are you? Why, why do you think you have anything to uh, tell me or the rest of us guys here? Because look at you. You're this white guy. You've been to college. You haven't gone through the things that I've gone through. And uh, I don't really think I want to pay attention to y- you at all. I'm only here so I could get out of my cell. Mm-hmm. And I, yeah. I could feel the group starting to like slip away. And Mm -hmm. where we were, you could look out out through the bars and see the big shopping center with Macy's and Nordstrom over the water there. And I said to him, I said, well, uh, maybe it's not obvious, but I've suffered a lot too. Maybe not in the same way that you have, but I've suffered a lot. And I don't think we can compare suffering. And I'm here not just to teach you, but I'm here to learn from you. I think we're here in an equal way, even though I'm going to leave at the end of the group and you're going to stay. I'm here really to be with you guys and to get what I can get from being with you. And if you look out that window, a lot of people who are in that shopping center, they're in their own prison. Mm -hmm. We can be out of prison here together. We can be free. And if we're free, the only people in prison are going to be the guards. (laughs) So can we use this time to wake up? And the, the, the guy, the kid, he just calmed down. We had a fantastic group that day.
0: Right, yeah, well, that's yeah, that's pretty known we I think a lot of us know how we create our own prisons, and definitely we have to look at white privilege, but I want to bring it back to Shanti Deva a little bit,
2: um maybe you could explain who Shanti Deva is to some people who haven't heard of him,
0: okay, well, shanti Deva was um uh, and I believe he was an Indian monk, and he was known as uh um in the monastery as being lazy somebody who was lazy and ate and slept and um basically um i guess i can say shit ate sleep eat sleep and shit that was how they called uh shantideva and one day some of the monks in the monastery were going to try and shame him and they asked him to um give a teaching and it could either be something that he wrote or it could be a teaching on something that was already learned and he came to the um, to the gathering, and all the other monks thought he was going to be thought it was going to be a big laugh fest. And instead, he um, rose up into the sky and then uh, came back down. And he delivered in one fell swoop the the Bodhi teachings on the bodhicharya Charivatara, the way of the Bodhisattva. And it's become a real guidebook for me, um, and I I really do attempt to live my life by it. And I feel that. Shanti Shantideva's teachings have guided me and I feel that uh, my own spiritual practice has borne fruit in a way that has led me to this other monastery. Because when I first came into San Quentin, um, I had I never really had a sense that I wanted to do work in a prison. It was simply a class on prison ministry that I took to fulfill a requirement. But after about um, two or three days in San Quentin, I realized I had just found my next monastery. I had been working with monasteries in India and Nepal for about 20 years, and and this was my new monastery. So absolutely what I'm finding there at the prison is that the transformation of negativity is at a rate that, my guess is making it glow from prison, if we could go out there. The, the bodhicitta, the level of, of spiritual transformation happening within those walls is profound. And it's, I think, one of the world's um, best secrets. I wish all the world would know how deeply devoted these men are to their spiritual transformation, so many of them. And and coming back to death row, that's exactly what I'm finding there. Um, one of the men said to me one night, he said, I can't believe people wouldn't want to hear from us. We're here on the edge. I mean, they want to kill us. Why wouldn't we have a a spiritual life? Why wouldn't we be fully devoted to finding our way? Why wouldn't we want to evolve our consciousness to a point where either we can be a benefit energetically to the rest of the world or our next time around we can do better? And, uh, you know, I really feel this to be true. So this is why I love... Um, telling people about the men there and what they're doing.
2: So in Tibetan Buddhism, before one really begins to practice, uh, traditionally there is a contemplation where one contemplates what are called the four mind-turning truths to develop motivation for practice. Because eventually, for all of us, practice will become difficult, that the road is not always smooth and straight. And the first of the mind-turning truths is you're going to die, but you don't know when. Mm -hmm. Now, what could be more obvious intellectually? But for those men, that's a living reality, the day-to-day, moment-to-moment. And and I work with uh, people who are dying. They're not in San Quentin mostly, uh, but they have that prognosis, not from the courts, but from the doctor, saying, you're going to die, but you don't know when, but it's going to be pretty soon. And that often inspires people to want to really wake up. So I'm, I'm yeah. feeling that there's an advantage to really knowing you're going to die, but you don't know when. To really have mm-hmm. that be there something is. that you're living from your bones. And is mm-hmm. it possible that you and I and people who are listening to this can take that contemplation, not just of something they know in their minds, but let that sink deep, deep, deep into their bones so that really it begins to inform the way you relate to other people, the way you relate to yourself.
0: Absolutely. That's core to the teachings. One of my dear teachers, Geshe Kenrab, was fond of saying, you never know what will come first, the next morning or your next life. And to really hold that close, uh, a lot that we carry will just dissolve. Things we'll choose our battles differently. We'll choose our thoughts differently. We'll act differently. I think anybody who has had any kind of serious life-threatening transition that has uh, limited their capacity, um, most people anyway, will alter the course of their life and really focus again on those spiritual qualities, those qualities of tolerance and understanding and compassion and empathy and. Back to your opening um, remarks, I think that one of the things that gives great peace is, yes, cultivating compassion, but even more importantly, recognizing our own interdependence, our own interconnectedness. And what I like to think of are three basic words in my chaplaincy and in my ministry. Mm. Connection, disconnection, an interconnection and interconnection to me is where we have our vertical connection with spirit and then we have our horizontal connection with how we are in the world. And when we intersect them, when we really bring that up through our own um, cultivation of our own virtues, our own morals and ethics, our own spiritual development, then we re- there suddenly is that pilot light moment of, I am a part of everything Everything is a part of me. That hummingbird, that squirrel, that person on the corner, the men in death row, they are me. I am them. We are no different. We are sharing the same air. We are sharing the same moment. And so in that realization, there is a great deal of freedom. And there is also uh, a great deal of um, diminishment of fear. You know, to not fear death is a huge freedom
2: for sure so could you tell us anything about what it's like i mean i'm even having a hard time picturing how you facilitate a group for people on death row i used to uh, go into prisons with ramdas and when when we were doing that when he would go into death row they kept the men in their cells and they each had a Mirror on a stick that they would hold out of the out of the cell so they could see somebody down at the end of the corridor. But I'm I'm picturing maybe you're in a room with all these people at the same time, or is that not true?
0: No, that's not true. Um, so the the men are divided into what's called yards, and the yards have to do with um, with race, with gang affiliation, with crime, with disability, etc. So uh, there's several yards among the over 700 men on death row, and when I first began seeing people there, I only had a handful, and they were from different yards, so I could only see three at a time because the little chapel where I go and see the men um, only have three uh, telephone booth-sized cages. Um, So let me walk you through. Let me walk you through what I do. I walk down through the prison through a long corridor and then i go to the left and there's these very large very archaic medieval looking doors that say condemned on the top (laughs) so i and i have to go through a giant gate to push a button And somebody will come and they'll open that giant door and they'll let me in. And from there, I sign in. I put in on a bulletproof, stab-proof vest. I go to the front desk. I tell the person at the front desk, the guard, who I'm seeing. They already know that I'm seeing yard six today or I'm seeing yard three. And then they'll call, that person will call all the men who are in that yard They'll give them a heads up that they're coming to Buddhist services. And then the tier guards, there's, there's I think, five tiers on death row, that, and the men live on these tiers stacked up. So the tier guards will bring them down into the little chapel. So what I do after that is I walk down the long row of uh, cells on the ground floor, and there's pictures of this on my website, on one of my stories, um, maybe, chaplain. Maybe. Chaplain theheart.com great and and i and i go past the long row of cells and i'll stop and talk to people from time to time and and to the at the very end of death row there's a little it's about i don't know maybe like 25 foot long and 12 foot wide like a little shoebox. it was an old shower area and that's the chapel and the men are brought in through a, a very tight Um, they're shackled and they're brought in through a little sally port and they sit if they're in the same yard they sit in the about four wooden very old they look like you know well they're 150 years old or something big heavy hewn wooden benches Um, and I'm in a little kind of uh, up uh, raised above with double razor wire between me and them um that's where the priest or the minister or the in my case the chaplain stands to to interrelate with these guys so they all file in and then we begin our our services with a uh a meditation and uh, dedication and offering and um if i'm seeing guys from a mixed yard they have to be locked in those three cages in the back because Only the guys in the same yards can actually interact. So that's the visual of it.
2: And what happens to people? I mean...
0: You mean when they sit there? No,
2: I mean over time. I mean, people are big. People, I would guess that a lot of these guys, when they went into prison, knew nothing about Buddhism.
0: I think that's true, and then it, um, and
2: then they're coming to see you every week or something as the months and years go by, uh-huh. and I imagine there are some rather lovely and even remarkable stories about transformation
0: oh absolutely, absolutely, and I've only been going into death row four or five years now, and i I want to say that for many of these men um, the, they if to get out of their cells, they go to they can exercise, they might have visits, they might have legal visits, and or they go to religious services. Uh-huh. So, for many of the men, maybe especially ones who don't get regular visits, many of them go to all the religious services or as many as they're interested in. So there's a very broad interfaith spectrum of knowledge there. And just like in the West, um, very few, very few, are cultural Buddhists, right. So many of them uh, are might be practicing Muslims or practicing jews or or spiritual but not religious, which I find the demographics in the prison of spiritual, not re- religious matches what's on the outside here. So, um, a Buddhist practice is, you know, Buddhism is a way of life. It's not so much a, a religion. It's a way of life, and so many of them really love to learn about Buddhism because it is a way of life, and it's a way. In the way I present it, um, well, let me back up a little bit. When I when I first started going in and doing these services. I realized that some of the men came from the Zen tradition, or they might have read a few books, that was their entryway, some from the Tibetan tradition, many from SGI, which is the old Nichiren, some from Theravada, uh, Theravadan tradition. And so I decided, well, okay, what we're going to do here is we're going to focus on what all these traditions have in common. And I introduced the idea of remay to them. remay meaning a non-sectarian practice of Buddhism. So they were all on board with that. So what we have studied are um, the the elements of Buddhism that are common to pretty much all the schools. We've spent a lot of time on the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, Dependent Arising, the Six Perfections, um, learning about the similarities and differences. But most of all, my my core message to them is to help them to cultivate a practice that's really individual to them and to let them know that marking progress with their practice is an important feature. It might not happen over time, but if they're doing a practice and not noticing um, that they're uh, well, let me put it in the positive. If they're noticing that they're more patient, calmer, <laughs> uh, less reactive, happier, um, uh, then their practice is working. If they're not, then we mix it up. And so for a lot of them, Buddhism, in the way I present Buddhism, offers them an, uh, an opportunity to form fit a spiritual practice that's about cultivating a warm, compassionate heart and through fostering a sense of interconnectedness with everyone and we start with everyone in the cell block and it's amazing because we'll sit there sometimes and we'll actually many many times if not most times when, when we start with our meditation it, there's an absolute cacophony going on as you can imagine 700 guys just you know hollering and playing chess between tears and yeah, you know yeah. TVs and radios and all this other stuff we will quiet it down with our initial meditation. It's really profound.
2: So, do a lot of these guys have a, a regular practice that? We, yeah. They sit in their cells on their own.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. It, they do. Very solid. One guy goes. I think he does a a month, um, twice a year. He does a full month retreat.
2: And. Do a lot of these guys then have some sense of, uh, how can I say this? Do they ask forgiveness from the people that they... uh, Offended? Yeah, offended. I guess that's the right word.
0: Well, let me... Let me move now to the mainline population because I, that, I work with forgiveness with the mainline population. With the men on death row, I'm mostly there doing Buddhist work and doing spiritual work. Forgiveness to me is an interesting topic, and I feel that it's often um, presented in a, not in the right way, especially working with the incarcerated. Um, I present forgiveness as a journey, not a destination. And forgiveness for most of the men there uh, goes b- both forward and backwards. And what I mean by that is, there's a point in time. Ta- there's a point in the journey of forgiveness where they need to forgive the people who abused them. They need to forgive the people who, uh, usually, their parents. Usually, uh, quite frequently, an absent or very abusive father, a mother who may have been on drugs or or um, a number of other things for various reasons, not blaming her, the mother, or the father, uh, for various reasons was not present for the child. So there's forgiveness that has to be paid backwards. Then there's the requesting of forgiveness of the self-forgiveness. And then there's, um, of course, ultimately, everybody would like to be forgiven. But uh, like that pilot light in the heart, I think forgiveness... um, like if if this is the room over here that is going to be wired up by a meditation practice that room is going to lead to the other room where forgiveness is going to happen right. uh, and so therefore i i have a problem with some of the people who come in and think that forgiveness is a must it's not it's not a must forgiveness is some for some people they will never forgive their father for beating them as much as they were beat, or et cetera. But if they find a place of compassion, that will at least allow for the identity to shift to where they're not positioning themselves against that anymore, and that position is not holding back their spiritual growth.
2: Let me read this quote by uh, Payment Chodron that we were talking about before we pushed the record button. It's called, Compassion Takes Courage. Just as nurturing our ability to love is a way of awakening bodhicitta, and I'm sure most of you know, but bodhicitta is the awakened heart. Just as nurturing our ability to love is a way of awakening bodhicitta, so also is nurturing our ability to feel compassion. Compassion, however, is more emotionally challenging than loving-kindness because it involves the willingness to feel pain. It definitely requires the training of a warrior. When we practice generating compassion, we can expect to experience our fear of pain. Compassion practice is daring. It involves learning to relax and allow ourselves to move gently toward what scares us. The trick to doing this is to stay with emotional distress without tightening into aversion, to let fear soften us rather than harden into resistance. And in some way, I think one of the Buddha's main understandings uh, was that this, all this condition we have to get away from suffering is exactly what prevents us from finding a home in our heart. That it takes this willingness to move toward what scares us. And as Pema Chodron so wonderfully points out in that quote, that that doing that is a very daring practice. It's a, it's really mm-hmm. the practice of being a warrior. And I think a lot of people who who aren't on the meditative path think, oh, compassion and love, that's, that's uh, like a, a, a soft kind of practice. It's something that we can just open to. But really, uh, it takes compassion for the part of us that's hurt other people, that's hurt ourselves, that hasn't loved. It's a very daring thing to do, and uh, the fact that you're bringing these teachings to these guys must be such a relief to some of them that they they uh, all that energy that is often uh, wrapped up in anger and aggression can be turned toward uh, forgiveness or at least toward compassion and and being a compassion warrior. Uh, yeah. We're living in increasingly difficult times that require more compassion. Uh, this recording is being done a few days after what happened in Charlottesville where there was that uh, violence between the, the protesters and the anti-protesters, etc. cetera. And uh, I work with a lot of people. Just yesterday, I was counseling a psychologist who, uh, Jungian psychologist, was coming to me for some guidance and mentoring, and she was saying that almost all of her clients are completely stre- stressed out. Maybe not completely, but they're almost everybody is bringing in a great deal of stress uh, in relationship to uh, what's going on politically, uh, socially in our country right now. And it seems to me that it, it that. Uh, it really is imperative that those of us who have had the gift of the Dharma brought into our lives really start bringing it into the world, really. Absolutely. And uh, maybe, I mean, I would guess for almost everybody, uh, you don't have the opportunity to go into death row. But every day we're meeting people who are suffering.
0: That's where it has to start it has to start right where you are I I mean one of my friends so years ago when I was a mail carrier and I was a mail carrier I carried mail because I was I had become a single mom and I suddenly needed a job that I that had benefits for my daughter and myself and I have some I had some friends I still have these friends and they're still out doing amazing things in the world and I said to I said to him I said Joel this is Joel and Michelle Levy yeah, Joel, I I feel so small sometimes in my job. How can I be of service on a greater level? And he said to me something very simple that I've used every day since. He said, Susan, before you get out of bed in the morning, just put forward the intention. May I be of service today? And right away, the very next day, I ended up pulling an old lady out of some bushes that had fallen <laughs> off of her porch and I found my mail my mail delivery um, uh, very frequently I would find myself in the right place at the right time and and going I was just reflecting today on how me going into death row is the fruit of my spiritual practice so I'm cutting to the chase here to say that I think we need to all focus on our spiritual practice and trust that that is going to lead us to the fruiting of where we're best suited to serve versus, I mean, maybe in addition to going out and looking for things to do and places to help because there's a certain um, energy behind that cultivation of bodhicitta that will directly link you to where you need to be. When I first started going into San Quentin, I imagined Tara sitting above death row. And and that was because I knew there was one practitioner in there, Jarvis Masters, my very first guy in, in my Buddhist group, who was uh, had received the same red Tara practice from the same Lama, Chagdutuku, as I did. And lo and behold, a year and a half later, Jarvis and I met and... and the rest is history. Now we have 65 people in our group. And I, we said to each other when we were, it was just Jarvis and I, and we did wonderful one-on-ones for quite a while. And Jarvis is a great practitioner. And, and we realized with each other, I said, Jarvis, you know, it's Guru's grace that brought me here, that brought us together. And because of Guru's grace, this is not going to stay the same. It won't be limited to you and I. We might have to, uh, we might get to expand and bring in more people. And he said, I totally understand because it's if it, the Lama, the Guru, continue to uh, operate through us through our own devotion and through our own recognition of their their right livelihood, their bodhicitta, and and so for chagdutuku to to uh, bring me in. Um, all the causes and conditions of, for Jarvis and I to meet, and now 65 people in the Buddhist group, this is an organic process that doesn't have to do with me other than my, my cultivating my my discipline and my spiritual practice. So I you know, also, I think there can be uh, we need to also look at why do we want to help. And so when you're really focusing on cultivating yourself, wearing the wrong helping hat is less likely you're going to be of service you're going to be a vehicle of the divine versus susan who wants to go do death row work that that it's a totally different thing because i never wanted to do death row work if you would have told me you're going to be in death row wearing a bulletproof stab proof vest talking to these serial killers and studying dharma with them i would have said yeah right you know nope and I and I also want to say that this morning, when I was reflecting on how I began to really practice Joel's words to me, I I called myself at the time, kind of jokingly, um, the patron saint of tight dog collars, because one of the things I found was that over and over again, dogs would find their way to me, and they would and I would pet them. And their collars were so tight. Sometimes they had made their way into the dog's neck a little bit, and I would loosen the dog's collar. Uh, and I would feel like this is um, this is a test. Susan, are you up for it? This is, and I said, yeah, I'm content for the rest of my life to be the patron saint of tight dog collars, if that's my calling. And it's just grown and grown and grown and grown. As you know, when we met, I couldn't even use my arms. And so, you know, to become the patron saint of tight dog collars or the patron saint of nails in the driveway, because I always find nails in the driveway and roads, I was okay with that. And it just continued to grow and grow and grow. And so I, I hope this is inspiring. But, you know, really look at ourselves sit in that fire that's what we call it in the prison that what payment children talks about we do need to embrace our suffering and to the degree that you want to heal and help is directly related to the degree that you're willing to embrace your own suffering and sit in your own fire and go through it because we need to purify that we need to really offer that up that's our edge that's our, we won't have a sharp knife if we don't if we don't use it against the the stone and the stone the 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 the, the stone the sharpening stone is our suffering if we're going to keep away from that sharpening stone we're just going to be some kind of like puppet that rela- relates from our um, our sensory aversions and and cravings you know but sharpen that stone and you become a vessel for service to the world
2: it seems that Red Tara is the uh, perfect deity to be floating over death row. Uh, Tara, m- probably most people know, is the embodiment of compassion, but there's White Tara, Green Tara, Red Tara, and Red Tara is the fierce the fierce embodiment. Uh, she's always mm-hmm. been my favorite.
0: Oh, good, yeah. In well, fact, I've got I, her picture you know... on my
2: wall. I won't go over there and grab the picture, but I think... You yeah. and I, and was his name Marcus, you said?
0: Uh, Jarvis. Jarvis, I'm sorry. Jarvis, Jarvis yeah, that all, yeah.
2: all three of us uh-huh. had the initiation with Jagda Toku.
0: Oh, very good, very good. Yeah, and my Lama, yeah, I received a healing through through white Tara. My Lama, Dupta Rinpoche, was a great devotee of Tara. And he, after hearing some of my um, my experiences with Tara, he told me in no uncertain terms, From now on in your life, only practice Tara, only, no matter what other practice you've done, forget it, only practice Tara. You are, and then he went on to uh, give me all kinds of great feedback about um, carrying on the work of Tara. (laughs) I met a, a, a Rinpoche recently who I, he was, we were talking about prison work and He said, you know, that's amazing that you saw Tara there. Tara loved prisons. Tara Tara goes to the darkest places. And so to me, uh, when I go in, I really um, put aside the Susan for sure, other than um, the kind of psycho-spiritual protection I put around me, um, because it is a dark place. It's full of negativity, even if the people that I... See are very joyous and happy and we have a lot of fun on death row believe it or not we laugh a lot there is still a lot of darkness around us and i think that again part of really being wanting to be effective and helping the world has to do with really protecting ourselves in a way so that our energetic our love our light our essence can freely um, be received and and flow out but at the same time protect us from some of that vicarious trauma and negativity, a lot of that that's out there. So it's an important part of being a, a helper and a healer is to um, not is to recognize your porousness, and this is where recognition of self is very useful. You have we do exist in this t- t- um, this t- time and space and form realm, so we have to be aware of where we're going with that and how we want to show up and not get burnt out.
2: You know, in terms of early childhood development, and a lot of the teaching I do is about somatics, because I think a lot of people in the West, particularly people who are practitioners, uh, do it from the heart and the mind and sometimes forget about the body. So that Mm -hmm. grounding and being down in the belly are really important. But that's just the foundation for being in the heart. And the energetic quality that allows one to be in the heart is having appropriate boundaries. And in my groups, when I say the word appropriate boundaries, uh, two-thirds of the people start groaning because they know that most of the suffering in their lives is coming from not having appropriate boundaries. So uh, it's an interesting notion, having boundaries and yet being behind bars, or having boundaries Mm -hmm. and not being behind bars, and how we deal with that. and kind of trusting that if we do have this foundation of being mindful, of being present, of being embodied, that the energy to have appropriate boundaries and be able to go into death row or be able to go into the marketplace in, in the ways that all of us are doing is something that can feed us rather than drain us. And Absolutely. my experience is that I can be with the the most violent, difficult person in the world or a very sweet person, and I'm going to get drained in that interaction, if I'm not connecting with that person. And if I'm connecting, no matter what personality qualities or history that person has, I'm not going to be drained so that when I'm beginning to build up stress or when I'm pulling back, uh, that's the, that's the inspiration to, uh, move toward the suffering, to drop down into my belly and open up my heart in in a more full way and realize that, uh, that quality of interdependence that you were talking about before. Mhm. Mhm. Mhm.
0: Yep. Yeah. Mhm. It's important. There's a in chaplains I I think I heard that especially uh, hospice chaplains there's a 5 year burnout rate and you know I, I I think it's a the other the flip side of being uh, empathetic and wanting to help and to serve uh usually comes from people who are porous enough to feel the suffering of the world but there's a, um a kind of a brass tax element where we absolutely need to bolster to 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 protect that to protect ourselves right. the the first time that I went into death row I almost didn't go in um I didn't know at that day that I was going to go in I had never been in before I was on the eighth day of a fast <laughs> and uh, I was just starting to get into that really psychedelic place where you get into with a fast where you're just totally sensitized to everything and my mentor at the prison uh, at the end of a very long day said to me oh let's let me see if I can get you into death row tonight and I was like oh my god really but um, you know I did a quick um uh, uh protection visualization around that, and and it led to where I am today, but we do have to be very careful. It, uh, is, I have heard from body workers who will be working on somebody, and they'll suddenly cough, and they'll realize that it, they hadn't had a cough prior to that, and then they learn that the person they're working on has been suffering from a cough or something like this, so you know, we we tend to entrain our energies. And I think in working with trauma, I work with a lot of trauma every single day. Um, the assignments that we give the guys in the mainline population are scaffolded to allow them to come forward and address some of that trauma. And um, I realized right away my very first year The importance of holding it as the truth of suffering versus coming home with the image of 13 stab wounds or gunshot wounds or something, you know, dead bodies or something like that. So to really uh, hold suffering as suffering without labeling it suffering. Has I mean, without labeling it with, okay, this is a stabbing, this is a rape, this is a, you know, this is this, this, that has really served me a lot. And it's allowed me to be in my belly when I'm hearing the heinous stories of crimes, to really be in my belly and to breathe and to say, and this is suffering, this is the truth of suffering, this is suffering, this is suffering. And to allow that love um, to come from my heart all the while hearing horrendous stories, or um, for example, on death row to sit in front of somebody who I may or may not know uh, why they're there. Um, I I don't really need to know, but every now and then I know. And um, to sit in front of somebody who I know has taken, um, you know, many, 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 many lives and to be uh to be talking about um the four noble truths or or even more challenging, how do you teach or how do you talk about the Eightfold path to men on death row? It, there has been some very major challenges in my application of the Dharma with uh, the men on death row at certain times and One of the things I love about Buddhism, about the Dharma, is that the ideas of karma aside, it's really about where you are right now. Where are we right now? What are we starting with today? Where are we going to go from here? And so we take all of that and we put that in the, the cauldron, as Caroline Casey would say. And, and we cook it up and we transform it and we offer it back.
2: So, Susan, why don't we take that as a ending point? I think you and I could talk for hours and hours. Once again, mm-hmm. let's just remark that you have a website called chaplainoftheheart.com. And, of course, the Living Dying Project, my website is livingdying.org. These uh, podcasts are supported by your donations, so you could go to the Be Here Now podcast page and make a donation if you're so moved. Thank you so much. Thank you for the work you're doing. Thank you for being with us here today. Lots of love to you, and uh, keep up the good work.
0: Thank you. Back at you.